Welcome to the 33rd episode of Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Melissa. I'm Hannah. I'm pretty sure 33 is a lucky number. Or like, at least it was for me growing up. I don't know. It was always my softball number and my mom always said it was a lucky number. It feels like a good number. I mean, three of anything is good. So if you have two threes, you have double of anything good. (laughs) Okay, well, this episode is a little bit different, so I know you're probably missing the boom intro music right now, but not to fear, we actually played it during the interview, which was live for the first time. We had a live boom interview at uh, the American Society of Biomechanics Virtual Congress. Super exciting, and we're going to do a bit of boom, and then you'll get to hear the interview. Yeah, so when we talk with Professor Michelle Savick, So you'll get to hear from her, and she's actually the president of the ASB, and we just have a really awesome conversation to her about her current work. Now she's the dean of the Parks College of Engineering, Aviation, and Technology at St. Louis University, so she talks about that experience, and we also talk about engineering education, which led to some really interesting conversations there, too. That's totally good call on giving a nice summary of it. And and even just think what Melissa highlighted is we didn't even know what deans did. So it was cool to hear a little bit more yeah. from, about that from Michelle. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, now we can do our bit of boom. 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 So our bit of booms today are actually from the American Society of Biomechanics Congress that happened this past August. And they're basically just things that Melissa and I found interesting as we were mulling about the virtual conference rooms. And it was actually a much more exciting and engaging format than I was kind of expecting, having a lot of Zoom fatigue. So it was actually nice to be able to interact with people through the spatial chats and really get to meet new researchers and interact with even like the CEO of Spatial Chat was there. So that was cool. Lots of different people at the conference. Cool. I didn't know that, actually. <laughs> yeah, he was. He kept popping in and out of spatial chat. And Lena Ting at one point was just like, oh, yeah, can you talk to the CEO for a minute? And we were all just like, what? <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> so that was super fun. Yeah, great job to all of the organizers. I'm sure that must have been a massive effort for them to host that. Yeah. So the first bit of boom today is from Professor Annie Halilaj Lab at, she's at Carnegie Mellon University, and she actually just received the Young ASB Young Scientist Award as well. So huge congrats to Annie, and we yeah. were lucky to have her in the DELP lab as well. That's exactly what I was going to say, that she's an alum of the Neuromuscular Biomechanics Lab and just an amazing scientist and awesome person. Yes, and clearly echoed in her work and also in who she is. So really excited to share a piece of her and her students' work. Her student, So Young Shin, had a poster titled, Combining Deep Learning and Top-Down Optimization Can Improve IMU-Based Kinematics. And this particularly caught my eye because I know a lot of us have been thinking about IMU-Based Kinematics being able to use these wearable sensors out in the wild and try to recreate with the same fidelity some of the kinematics that we get in optical motion capture lab. 
So it was super exciting to see that they were successful with this combined approach of using both deep learning and top-down optimization. And they showed this with actually simulated IMU data from a freely accessible running data set of motion capture data. And then they also validated with some IMU data that they collected on their own. Oh, okay, cool. So it wasn't even necessarily from the same data set that they were predicting like training versus predicting on to, which seems like then what their algorithms can be applied to IMU data collected for other people? Yeah, I think so. I think that was the goal to show that it was working in, in both different settings. Yeah, and, and they were getting pretty good results using this combination for sagittal joint angles, which yeah are just basically our hip, knee, and ankle flexion angles. They were getting within one degree of error of optical motion capture, which they were sort of using as as the comparison. So that's oh, pretty wow. exciting. Yeah, that seems like really good error. And I think we always talk about biomechanics in the wild, and this seems like a great study to move in that direction and sort of validate some of these efforts around. I am used to, because I think I am used are people have a lot of opinions about IMUs. Um, yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's nice to see really like rigorous work and robust algorithms using IMUs. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, I'll share some work that I thought was really interesting. So there's a group of scientists from Georgia Institute of Technology, and they are studying the topic of knee joint acoustic emissions. And so this group has developed a multimodal smart brace that can record joint sounds. So it's like a brace around your knee that can listen to what's going on inside of it. So like and those creaks and pops that you hear when you get yeah. up from a chair and stuff. <laughs> exactly. But like even at a smaller scale. So like even like when you're walking, like what sounds is your knee making, your knee joint making? And they found that the acoustic emissions of the knee are correlated with joint loading and the acoustic emissions were predictive of joint health in juveniles with arthritis during loaded and unloaded exercises. So those were just two studies, but there was a, a group with a lot of other studies and interesting applications. And I don't know, it was just, I just thought it was so interesting, like another biomarker of joint health and like acoustics, I think are so interesting. Also, I think when I like listen to the sounds, it kind of like weirded me out a little bit but I I don't know I just found it to be even more like interesting listening to like a healthy knee versus like an unhealthy knee so yeah and it made me think about some of I study osteoarthritis and thinking about how we don't have a lot of knowledge on like what specific ex we know that exercise is beneficial for osteoarthritis but not what specific exercises or durations and so I was like, oh, it could be cool to see if we could get immediate feedback on loading of the knee and different exercises and help maybe design better exercise programs for people like more personalized, like also leading more towards this like personalized approach, which I get really excited about. So I thought they had a lot of interesting ideas and cool research. And it's always fun to see a new technology and the different applications of that. Yeah, and I loved what you said, Melissa, about getting immediate feedback, because I think one thing that I've learned about OA from, from your presentations and several others is just that one of the difficult things is that you don't have that like sort of really 
fast close feedback loop to get any like marker on what's actually going on or how people are feeling. You've got to wait weeks or something for joint pain to emerge. And maybe it's not correlated with how do you know what, what it's correlated with and things like that. So I think that's, yeah, super impactful. Yeah, totally. Well, these are just two examples of some of the amazing research we saw at ASB. Hannah and I also presented, we had a poster about BOOM and what we've learned over the past two and a half, almost three years now. So that was really fun. We also hosted a design thinking tutorial. So that was really amazing and exciting. I also presented on how mindsets about exercise can influence whether people with osteoarthritis choose exercise to manage their disease and how mindsets about osteoarthritis are related to changes in pain after a gait modification, which I was excited to present about and kind of bring mindset and psychology into the biomechanics world. So that was really fun. Yeah. And it was so awesome to see that topic highlighted at this conference too, because I I don't think it's not necessarily something we've thought about in the field of biomechanics, bringing that psychology piece in. So super great. Yeah. Conferences are just such a great opportunity to meet people who are interested in the topic too, and had so many great conversations since then. So yeah, I really enjoyed ASB and appreciated all the efforts put into it. And I guess with that, maybe we should just jump into the interview with Dr. Sadek. Welcome to our first ever live episode recording of Biomechanics on Our Minds. We're really excited to have you all here to learn and talk together. Uh, My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day. And if you haven't listened to Boom before and you don't know us yet, we're PhD students at Stanford. And we've been hosting Boom for over two and a half years now, which seems crazy. And if you listen to our early episodes, we're a little awkward. So hopefully we've improved. We cover a variety of topics in biomechanics, but also extend into other areas like mental health, failure, mentorship, and some other topics. Today, we're at the Virtual American Society of Biomechanics 2020 meeting. Somehow, we're allowed by the organizers to put on our very first live episode recording. So we've learned so much in the talks and presentations so far, and we're excited to have a little less formal conversation now. So with that, we are going to do something a little crazy. Do you want to play the song first? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're going to play our theme music. And then Melissa will give you some instructions. Welcome to Boom. We have biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 All right. Well, we hope that brought the energy up. And (laughs) we're going to ask if everyone could unmute themselves. And we are going to do a one, two, three, boom together to get it started. So after three, everyone can can yell boom. All right. <laughs> okay. One, two, three. Boom. Boom. <laughs> awesome. Okay. All right. Thanks for participating in that. <laughs> So just to kind of give you an idea of what we're going to do today, we're going to start with some questions that we've prepared for our guests, and we'll spend about 20 minutes in that conversation. And then afterwards, we hope to open it up to questions that you all might have. 
So feel free to send questions in the chat throughout. And then when we open it up, we'll call on those who have put a message in the chat to ask their questions aloud. Great. So those are the logistics. Um, now we'll introduce the guest of the episode. We're really thrilled to introduce Professor Michelle Sabic. Michelle is a professor in biomedical engineering and the dean of the Parks College of Engineering, Aviation and Technology at St. Louis University and the president of the American Society of Biomechanics. So thank you so much for offering to talk with us today. Thanks. It's great to be here. So what has been the most exciting part of ASB 2020 for you so far? Well, I have to say that I was so excited to see how many people just attended the opening welcome and the initial keynote. And obviously there's been some great sessions since then as well, but it was, I was actually watching the numbers of attendees and there were well over 500 people there. And when we first realized that we had to sort of call an audible and go to a virtual conference, I think we had very few expectations of how many people would attend and, and whether it would really work out the way we hoped. So it was just great to see so many people participating at that very first event. And I think the other sessions that I've been in since then have been very well attended as well. So while it wasn't particularly about the biomechanics, although the keynote was great, right? It was just, I'm just so excited to see that people could participate. And I think we forget sometimes that we're disappointed that we can't be together in person at the conference, but some people who wouldn't otherwise be able to join us can join us in this format. And so in other ways, it's actually really a boon, right, that we get extra people maybe that can attend that otherwise wouldn't. So that's exciting to me that maybe we're reaching some people that we otherwise would not have been able to have join us for our conference. Thank you for sharing that. One of our first and favorite questions on Boom, and actually, Don, you noted this earlier, and wanted to hear Michelle's story. So that gets kind of who our first question, which is what inspired you to become a biomechanist? And when did you know that that's what you wanted to be? So thank you for asking that. I've been reflecting on that ever since I was thinking about what questions I might be asked today. So I think it happened when I was an undergraduate in college, right? I knew when I was a junior in high school, I discovered biomedical engineering. And like, as soon as I found out about it, that was immediate. I knew exactly that that's what I wanted to do for my career. But specifically, I think I knew that I was sort of on the more mechanical side. So I think biomechanics was sort of my leaning, but where I really got sort of excited about it and where I kind of moved into my research area was I was a soccer player in college. And I played Division Three. It wasn't as competitive as, as many people, but it was a big part of my life. And when you play a competitive sport, you end up sort of meeting people not only from your own team, but from other teams. So a lot of times when you, you play these other teams, you kind of know the people you're competing against because you've been at tournaments against them or whatever. And so there was one particular person that played my same position, right? So I had to guard her every single time we played. And she was really good. And I always, like every game I knew I had to be on my game in order to keep up with her and to try to neutralize her. And one year she tore her ACL. And so it was about another year before she came back. She was able to play again. She must have torn her ACL like and missed most of her junior season and then came back for her senior season. But at that time she came back, she was wearing a huge knee brace and she wasn't wow. the same player anymore, right? It wasn't, I mean, not that it was easy for me, but it was not nearly the same challenge. Like it, you could tell her ability to compete had been totally affected by going through this massive challenge. And so that really made an impact on me. Like, oh my gosh, this is 
What can we do about that? Why could she not come back to her former self or will she eventually? And it just hasn't happened yet. And how could I use my skills to help figure that out? Because number one, I don't want it to happen to anybody else. I don't want it to happen to me. I don't want it to happen to any of my teammates. And then I had obviously several teammates and competitors that I actually watched tear their ACLs in games, right? And that's as a an athlete, right? It's always hard to see somebody get injured, but when you, when you like hear the pop and you know what it is and you go, Oh, they're not coming back for a while. And then you go, that could have been me just as easily as it was her. So it was that field experience, right? In sports that I think solidified it to me that I want to figure this out. This is going to be a challenge that I work on. Ironically, I'm now uh, focused on upper extremity more than knees, but I, I did spend a lot of time trying to understand knee mechanics and, and how ACL injuries occur. Yeah, that's such an inspiring story and and just that want to be able to help people, I find is like really motivating for a lot of biomechanists. Would you mind giving us a kind of a brief summary? You said your current work is no longer focused on ACL injury, but maybe just summarizing what your work is on now and, and that transition into it. Sure. So my current work, and honestly, the dean of my college, so my actual time to do research is pretty limited. So I still do it, and it's fun, but it's more of a hobby than a, (laughs) as I would imagine some of your guests have it, they're just amazing researchers. So I have a couple of students in my lab, and we focus on upper extremity biomechanics. We look a lot at the mechanics of the elbow and shoulder in baseball pitchers, athletes in general, but baseball pitching has been a big focus. And more generally just doing good motion capture for the upper extremity so we can really understand how everything is moving. And especially right now, I've got a student working on ways that we can track the scapula non-invasively, but also easily because since it's under the skin, it's actually without medical imaging, it's hard to track. How I got there is like many, I guess, career stories. It's a bit of a crooked pathway, but the long story short is that after I finished my PhD which was in biomechanics. It was more around the biomechanics of falls and hip fracture. I got a postdoc at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and met an amazing mentor there, Dr. Kainan On. And he was such a supportive guy. But I worked with him. We were working on wheelchair biomechanics. So it was one of those, like, it was, I wanted to go to that location and work in that lab. And I was less concerned about which specific joint I was working on. And so that got me kind of into the upper extremity. And then My first job doing full-time research after my postdoc was working at a research foundation that basically did both upper extremity and lower extremity, but they had a position open in upper extremity. And so my wheelchair background sort of got me into that position. And that took me into the more competitive athletes and baseball pitching, which is just really fun. I think it's always so reassuring to hear like the kind of stepping stones and you said crooked path, like and really a lot of like people-driven choices, it sounds like too, like you wanted a certain mentor or experience and kind of just following that and being open to that. I love hearing those stories. It makes takes a little bit of the pressure off of when you're trying to figure out what you're doing. There is no one right story, right? We all just, <laughs> we all just make choices along the way. So, <laughs> Well, somewhere along the way, you sort of got this passion for improving the ways that universities deliver engineering education to students. And we'd love to hear more about that and just let us know, like what sparked your passion for that engineering education? So when I first became a faculty member, that was a choice I made very intentionally to go be at an institution where teaching was also a priority. So it was 
a place that still had a big tradition of undergraduate education. And even if you were a researcher, you were not going to get away with not being a good teacher or at least trying really hard to be. And I wanted that because I realized at some point in my probably late 20s that teaching was something I really enjoyed and that I wanted to be an important part of my career, right? Not just something I had to, I had to do, but that I always wished I didn't. <laughs> so I made that choice. But I don't think I had any ideas that I would do anything that wasn't traditional. I mean, like many of us, I went through engineering education that was a lot of lectures. It was some hands-on labs. Some of those were pretty canned and not particularly great learning experiences. And I realized after I became a faculty member and I was kind of sitting on the other side of the desk that mm -hmm. grades and learning were not necessarily really the same thing, right? Like many people, when I was a student, it was the grade that really motivated me I wanted to learn, but I mean, in the end, you know, I also wanted the right GPA and whatever, the right test scores. And I was, as many people that make it, I guess, as far as I have in the system, I was a good test taker, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a very useful skill for anything in the real world. But I realized when I became a faculty member that there were some classes that I had gotten really good grades on in college that I didn't know a dang thing about, right? That I couldn't. So I'll give you an example. I got an A in thermodynamics. And when I graduated, I'm not sure I could have told you how a refrigerator works, right? You know, I could draw the little cycle diagram, look up the things in the tables, but it, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't capturing the meaning, the understanding, the deep learning that you're actually supposed to get. I figured it out later, but, the, but at the time I didn't. And so as an instructor, I wanted to make sure that I was focusing on the deep learning piece and not the superficial piece. And that's not always easy to do because students obviously they want the grade, right? And often it's because they have, they want to go on to graduate school or they want to go to medical school or they're just competitive people. And they've been trained by the system for 18 plus years, right? To do it that way. Right. So that's really, I think what motivated me. And so I realized that a lot of the things we do in engineering education are just so fake, right? I mean, we, we divide up material into sort of artificial little packages and we call those units in a course or courses. And when you think about how you're going to use that in the real world, we don't actually teach it that way and we don't assess it that way, right? I have never in all of my professional life been locked like in a closet with a calculator and a pencil and been told to solve a problem. And if I got it wrong when I came out, I was fired, right? That never happened. That's essentially what a high stakes final exam is, right? So that got me really interested in project-based learning and active learning techniques and really getting people to wrestle with the data, right, or wrestle with mm -hmm. the concepts. And I think biomechanics is a great place to do that because I could go to my lab and have people jump around on a force plate and then we have this amazing data to play with and it really gets people to understand forces in a way that just drawing a vector on a free body diagram doesn't always get them to do. So that's sort of maybe encapsulates a little bit about my philosophy and where it came from, but it really came from just wanting people to actually understand this stuff, much of which I realized until I taught it several times, I didn't really understand it the way I should have when I was 20 years old. Yeah, I... Totally agree. Sometimes it's like a bit discouraging. I'm like, oh, you know, I was in school for how many years and took how many classes and I don't remember anything from that. So you talked a little bit about how you see it kind of transforming from more of like these test assessments to maybe more like skills and applied learning. What barriers do you see that there are currently that we need to overcome to really get to that type of learning? 
So there's a lot, right? The first is that most of us haven't seen it practiced very much. So it's hard to imagine what it would look like to do anything different than go to class, take notes based on lectures, and then have two or three exams and a final, right? That's just kind of, it's just how it's always been done. And so it can be hard to envision something else. Thankfully, many of us, if you're in engineering or in other disciplines in biomechanics, have probably had project-based courses and stuff that at least make you think about other options or good labs. But I think that's just really false, right? It's just not the way things are done in the real world. So I think it's really important to the extent we can to try to set up scenarios that are more like real life problems, right? And like a simple example, I used to teach, I used to teach dynamics. So when we do projectile motion, right, we always take out wind resistance, right? Because if you do actually the problem, even really simple problems get kind of hard to solve, Mm -hmm. but we don't live in a vacuum, right? Like there is no problem that I can think of in the real world where that would actually be appropriate unless it was on the moon or something. Actually, and that's not even a perfect example there either, right? So thinking about how to get students doing things that are more like what they'll be doing in the workplace, whatever that will be, is my goal. The challenge is we don't know what that's going to be, right? So first of all, there's a million different career paths a student, even a specific discipline could choose. So that's complicated. The other is we know full well that even if we were to know, like, this is a mechanical engineer and they want to go to the energy industry, right? Even if we knew that, like, the job they're going to have in five years literally probably doesn't exist now or or it definitely couldn't. And so how can I train somebody for a job I don't even know what it is, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the thing that we need to think about is how you teach people to be lifelong learners, how you teach them to solve problems strategically without actually knowing what the problems are. And that can be a shift of mindset for faculty, right? So a lot of faculty, again, go to what they are used to, and it can take some time. But most people, if they try other models, and they see the light bulb go on in students in a way that they haven't in a more traditional classroom setting, will get really excited about it, and they'll do it even though it can be a lot of work. And that's the other thing is just Faculty members are pulled so many different ways. So if they've taught something a certain way or if they were handed a set of notes from another faculty member and they've used those, there's not a whole lot of incentive for them sometimes to make the huge effort that it takes to change. And so, and I understand that, especially if they're not rewarded a whole lot for making those kind of changes at a lot of schools your teaching evaluations are not really that important to your future career, right? It depends what your institution is like. That, I think sometimes the incentives are a little perverse in terms of what we'd like to see in the classroom at, at some institutions. Do you think there should be a bigger emphasis on the teaching evaluations? Well, I think teaching evaluations are imperfect. We know a lot now about the biases that are inherent in teaching evaluations that I think should make us a little cynical or take them with a grain of salt, but there are ways to assess that somebody's being a good teacher or that they're doing quality improvement in teaching that I think are really important. And I think student evaluations are one kind of data that feed into that, but they certainly shouldn't be the only thing. And I think how much teaching is valued varies by institution. I do think that sometimes when people come out of graduate school or a postdoc and go into faculty positions, they don't necessarily fully understand how to assess the institution and how much the different parts of their job will kind of be weighted. And I think it's really important, right? So at some schools, if research is the coin of the realm, that's better better be what you spend your time on and make sure that you're getting that right because that's actually what's going to get you promoted, right? Or that's what's going to get you to the next step of your career at that institution. And then there's some institutions where the faculty members are much more 
devoted to teaching and their job, their workload, their job description is more focused on teaching. And in those places, there's a lot of different ways you can think about how you assess it, but you better really be focused on it because that is the primary focus of those jobs. So it's just different, right? There's no one right answer, but I think there's a lot of different ways to assess good teaching and it should be done pretty holistically. But the amount that that matters depends on the institution you're at and how much it really values teaching. That's super helpful. I think Melissa and I have been talking too about like, what is our next step? And we both, I know, really love teaching. So just hearing all of that has been helpful and thinking about the different flavors of jobs and universities that are out there. Yeah, I had another question. I've been really interested in this idea, kind of the shift of learning to be like learning how to learn and more like self-teaching in education. And obviously right now there's like this big shift to learning virtually. And I'm wondering where you might see these interacting, like learning by doing and kind of these like hands-on learnings and also this idea of teaching ourselves to learn and seeing that kind of be a big transition in the future maybe. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think some people are sort of hardwired to need experiential kinds of learning and other people are just better able to learn from textbooks or kind of more traditional methods. So I think for some people, the more experiential version is really, really important. And for others, it can be helpful, but it's more like an auxiliary, right? Or it's kind of the icing on the cake. I have kids that are grade school aged, and so I'm watching them grow up as digital natives in a way that I certainly didn't, and I've been watching them go through the school transition this spring as they spent a bunch of time doing online schooling, and it is fascinating to watch them and to watch college students and to watch my colleagues as a faculty, all of us trying to figure out how best to engage with people online and how to use those resources, and I think that the people who are good at learning how to learn, adapt to that a little bit better, right? They're kind of, I think, able to go, like if, for example, if I'm your faculty member and I give you a video to watch, right, that's kind of encapsulates my lecture and it just doesn't help you understand, right? Some people are just sort of better equipped to go out and get on YouTube or Khan Academy or whatever is the appropriate place and find additional resources that help them fill in the gaps of the things that I didn't explain that well. So I think that's really important. But if we're going to rely on that, we have to teach students how to find the right resources, how to assess the quality of those resources, because I can find all kinds of resources, but it doesn't mean I should trust (laughs) a lot of them, right? And some of them are just full on wrong, right? Even if it's for somebody, like I could solve a problem, right? And post it online. It doesn't mean I got the right answer. (laughs) I could have made a mistake and drawn the free body diagram or whatever too. There's this piece about teaching people how to learn. A part of it is teaching them how to find resources, how to find information. And then it's how to judge the quality of that information. And then there's all the different ways you can interact with different forms of information. I think those, when we think about the future of learning, I think there will be a lot more focus on that, teaching people how to be able to interact with all different kinds of resources and how to find them than what we currently do. Like in engineering education, our accreditor ABET, we have to demonstrate that we teach students how to do lifelong learning but I don't know that that's ever been a major focus, right? It's in there, but it's sort of not weighted as much or, or as prominent as some of the technical skills. I think we're seeing these days that a lot of the technical stuff with the right program or the right spreadsheets or the right tools, you can solve really complicated problems even without understanding some of the underlying theory. That's not always a good thing, but you can do it. So now it's about understanding how you figure out 
how to use those tools in a way that is appropriate for the particular situation, what assumptions you can make, when do you know you don't know and therefore need to ask more questions. That's the kind of skills I think we need to really be instilling in students so that they can be successful in this new world and transition to different jobs throughout their careers. I love how, like, I feel like through that, I could feel how learning how to learn was evolving with the different learning that we are learning. Like it's like so many different layers. And I think we can't really talk about learning without failing because that's such an integral part of learning. And one of our favorite questions is, do you have an example of a time that you had a failure and what did you learn from it? So the answer is yes. I've had several examples of failure. (laughs) And I'm trying to think of really the best one for this particular example. I think something that will resonate with a lot of people that are in graduate school or they're in faculty positions, right, and they're kind of on the academic track, is we have all had the experience of pouring our heart and soul into a grant application or a journal article, right, and having it come back just massively rejected, right? Like just, you know, what if it's a journal article, just rejected and not, and, and the reviews just seem completely out of left field or a grant proposal, again, that you tried so hard on and maybe even got triage. It didn't even get fully reviewed. So you didn't even really get any feedback. I've had a couple of situations like that. Thankfully, not all of them were like that, but it's, it's hard at first to accept the criticism, right? There's a tendency to go, well, they're they're stupid, right? They obviously missed the point. And occasionally a reviewer really does miss the point of what you're trying to write. But what you have to learn and where you can grow from that experience is, okay, well, if that person missed the point, right? Okay, maybe they were like sleeping when they read it. But let's assume that that's not the case. It probably means I didn't communicate it as clearly as I should have. Or it at least means I could be clearer and more upfront with that point, right? That there's a way if somebody missed it, other people could miss it. And therefore, I, I should really think about how I, how I approach that, how I explain it. And so I have learned, right, that the first time I got a review like that, I read it. I was about to cry, right? I was so upset. And I had to walk away for a while, right? Because at, at first, it's so personal. It's really hard to even process the information. And you certainly can't be systematic about how you process it at that point. So I, I often if I open something up and I see that it's not a positive response, I'll put it away for a week or two. I may skim it really quick just to get an idea of kind of what the general things are so that in my subconscious, I can kind of be chewing on, okay, well, how would I respond to this? But I I try not to really focus on it. And I definitely don't get into the weeds of all the details. And then two weeks later or so when like the scab has healed just a little bit, right. And I feel like maybe I'm not so sensitive about it now. Then I go back and look and try to be as detached as possible when reading it, right? And think about, okay, what is the positive, right? What is the, the nugget of feedback in here that's actually really useful? And then that usually makes the next round of that grant application or that journal article so much better than the first one, right? If you can do that several times, you'll usually come up with some really just better ways of explaining things, better ways of articulating what you're trying to do, why it's important. And you'll make sure that you convince the next set of readers, whether it's that same set of reviewers or a different one, why what you did is valuable. Yeah, there was so much that I feel like resonated with that. Just the idea of not taking things personally. And I like what you said about kind of skimming. And and I kind of do the same sometimes. And I just kind of let it sit there for a little bit, but not 
dig too deep, but it's like kind of amazing where you'd just be on a walk and then a thought just comes up about it. And so I like that idea too. And then, and the idea of you kind of reframing it to be like, well, this is actually in the long run going to make it a lot better and more readable for other people. And so the last question that we wanted to ask you is what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? So there's a lot of things I'm excited about, but in terms of like research, I think one of the things I'm excited about is all the new technologies and the possibilities now for moving experiments out into the field, right? We've got all kinds of sensors now that we didn't have a few years ago that are wearable, portable, and we can do things in a different way than we could in the past. And I think once we really get a handle on using those effectively, we're going to find how limited our past experience in the lab was, right? Like just that the environment is so false and we, we sort of have to have pretty lame simulations of what we would like try like to sometimes that I think we'll find some different interesting insights out in the field. From an American Society of Biomechanics perspective, I'm excited about our growth, right? We're seeing really great gender diversity amongst our members. We have a long way to go in terms of our other forms of diversity, but I'm also seeing some great signs there where we're getting some affinity groups that are coming together and people are, our diversity and women's events have been amazingly well attended in the last few years. And it wasn't that long ago that those were small. Now you can't get a ticket. I mean, those things I think are fantastic. I think they're great for our field and they're going to, I think they're going to open up all kinds of exciting possibilities in terms of the types of research people are doing and the questions that they're asking. I think that that's just going to be great for our field. And, and then that will hopefully have us make an even bigger impact on our society, which is really what we're all here for. And I don't mean the society about American society about mechanics. I mean the world, right? The society or community around us. So that's exciting to me to see all the new people get involved and the diversity of those people, even though we still need more diversity. I think it's better than it used to be. And we need to, we need to keep up the efforts and the pressure and encourage lots of people to take part. But I think Ultimately, biomechanics is about studying living systems, and we're all living systems, so there's always some sort of universal thing that we understand, and it brings us together in a way that I think is really exciting. Yeah, can appreciate both of those, both the, the research side and technologies, and I really appreciate your visions for both the American Society of Biomechanics and biomechanics community as a whole, especially with becoming more diverse and just kind of growing together as, as a community. So with that, we'd love to just open it up for any questions from anyone that's listening. So feel free to, if you want to turn on your video or not, or just feel free to unmute and ask any questions or post them in the chat. Oh, we've got one. <laughs> Someone's raising their hand. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your story, Michelle. I really enjoyed hearing all the way from the beginning. I was doing a little Googling in the background, fill in the parts you didn't say about your time at Case Western, et cetera, but there's detail out there. You've been, ended up in administrative positions the last two stops. Tell me a little bit about what attracted you, how you, how you feel like your skills took you to that space and kind of some of the pros and cons. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the short answer is somebody twisted my arm. <laughs> two stops back, I had a, a dean, and we were in a, you know, a departmental transition, and the dean said, like, 
you'd be really good at this. And I looked at her like, you are crazy. What are you talking <laughs> about? And not only did I not think I had the skills for it, I didn't think I was the right person for my department because my background was kind of unusual for that department. But she said, no, trust me. And then I started to think about it kind of as we just talked about, like I, I thought about it for a while. I let it simmer and I realized, you know, there's some things that this department needs that I think I could help with. So I think what I realized is that there's a couple things. First of all, I knew I liked research and it was fun and I enjoyed it, but it was not like the thing that made me get out of bed in the morning, right? It was something I love to do, but it's not the only thing that motivated me. And this sort of the student experience and making sure students were getting the most out of their education is something that really did motivate me. And so the fact that I could impact not just the hundred students I might teach in a semester or the 10 students in my research lab, but I could affect in my first job, the eight or 900 students that we had in my department, that was pretty exciting, right? That I could, and I could help hopefully start to make some of the changes in the way people were teaching and kind of, you know, do these things to sort of hopefully move the needle that would in the end really make the experience better for students and help support their learning. So that's the piece that motivated me. It's underlying, it's the motivation, even though I don't spend as much time in the classroom as I used to, right? But it's about, it's about that. And I think in general, what I've learned is that I didn't know it, but I think I look at complicated systems in a way that I can sort of help take them apart and figure out what needs to be worked on. And I think we, as engineers, we tend to be better at that or as scientists than some types of people or some training, but I also don't think even everybody can do it. And so I think that that's something in administration, people don't think about that way, but I sometimes think I'm sort of like a systems engineer, right? My system is a complicated group of people whose behavior is unpredictable and there's a bunch of laws and customs governing how they interact and and who they report to and how they learn. It's a really weird way to say it, but I feel like in some ways I'm using my engineering discipline, but it's in engineering kind of human behavior with the ultimate goal of creating great learning outcomes. Becoming a dean was also an accident, right? So (laughs) I became a department chair and then I realized that I had some skills that I could actually, that I could do it. And then I could really have the impact that I talked about. And I switched institutions so I could be at a department that sort of fit with my discipline a little bit better and had some resources that I thought would be good that way. And I jokingly refer to it as an unfortunate series of events that led to my dean transition. And I realized that, we, so we were going to do a search of, you know, sort of amongst the people in my college. And I looked around and I said, oh, wow. I mean, if those guys think they're qualified for this, then I probably am too. I should at least throw my hat in the ring. It would be sort of irresponsible for people that could do this job to at least not step up and go through the process. So, so I ended up being a dean. I've been doing it just over four years now. And as you might expect, I spend even less time doing research. I spend even less time doing teaching, but I still do some of those. So it's kind of enough to whet my appetite and keep me feeling like I'm in the game. Now, right, I have even a bigger impact over a bigger group of students across multiple disciplines. And I work together with the other deans and my provost to help shape the direction of the entire institution, right? So I've gone from sort of maybe 100 students a year to 800 students to, in a small way, 12,000 students a year, right? So that feels good. There's still so much work to do, 
it's not like we've transformed everything, but I do think that's the thing that motivates me and makes being an administrator tolerable sometimes. This year has been an extremely difficult year for everybody, but for those of us trying to open up campuses and figure out what to do, transition to online learning, it's been really challenging. I won't lie, and yet you want people that are engaged and trying to make sure students are at the forefront of every decision, participating in those discussions, right? And so I try to be one of those voices. Well, I don't want to dominate, and I know this is being recorded, but I'm going to throw a little love your way because... I've known you before you took on some of those jobs and after. You haven't just transformed things. They've transformed you into an even better person, a better manager. I mean, I just, I can see, and it's just so great to have you in the ASB presidential line to have kind of shown those skills to this society of ours. So thank you so much for sharing those skills. I appreciate that. I think that one of the things that I realized is there are different skills that we can bring to bear to different situations, right? And um, if I'm not a fantastic researcher, I'm like I said, I enjoy it. But if that's not my thing, what is the place that I can really contribute? And within the biomechanics community, we need people that can help organize things, people to lead certain events, right? And so leadership and some of those skills come in handy, even for a very research-centric society. That's helpful. So I think I think that's one thing that's important for all us all to understand is we have different skill sets, and it's just about figuring out where they fit in and where you can have the most impact with those particular skills. And sometimes it's not where you expect it, right? I mean, I think I I'm probably glad that I was in the leadership position that I am in ASB this year because it's been a really tumultuous year. I'm sure many of other people could have done a really good job, but I think I was equipped in some ways to do this because of my past positions that not everybody has that particular set of experiences. But thank you, Don. I appreciate it. It plays right back to your statements earlier about diversity and trying to diversify this organization more because diversity brings so much. So Mm -hmm. thanks. Yeah, thanks. And definitely, I think when you're surrounded by what feels like people who have the same skill sets, it can sometimes feel difficult or isolating when it feels like you don't fully align. So eventually finding your path and where you do fit, I think is just such a nice thing that resonates really well yeah. with, with us and our listeners. So I see there's a question in the chat, so I'd be happy yes. to address it. And the question is, what is the biggest piece of advice for graduate students early in their graduate careers to set themselves up for a career in academics? There's a lot of things I could say here, but one of them comes back to something we touched on earlier, which was understanding the different types of positions in higher education is really important. Whether you want a straight path or a crooked path, right? At least knowing what the different choices are, I think is really important. So a couple of times I've actually gone and and given a talk at like a regional meeting and students ask questions and I realized lots of students, even in their, they're in graduate school, right, which means they've been in university, probably two different universities, and they've gone through this system, don't fully understand how a university is structured and what the different types of universities are and how to kind of understand if I'm looking for an academic position, what my different options are. So I think to the extent you can study that, ask your advisor, ask other students that have gone on interviews, ask the postdocs who are looking at positions, right? Ask everybody you can a little bit about maybe their path and the types of institutions they've been at and how to figure out what's right for you, right? Because the reality is there are schools where even if you just stick just within higher ed, 
right? There's everything from two-year colleges, undergraduate-only schools where you're all teaching or maybe teaching with just a little bit of undergraduate research, larger universities often that still focus on undergraduate programs and maybe have really small graduate programs or maybe only have master's programs and not doctoral programs, and then some that have small doctoral programs and then some that have huge graduate programs at the doctoral level. And each of those is a little bit of a different experience. And if you're really interested in research, right, you want to be one of the ones that's got a ton of, probably you want lots of graduate programs. So you have great students coming into your lab and the ability to get things going. But if you want a little bit different balance between teaching and research, right, there's these sort of other choices. But what people need to understand is if, if you eventually want to work at a really research intensive institution, it's hard to do that if you started out at a teaching intensive institution, right? Because say you go there, you spend three years, you're a great teacher, but then when you go to apply for that job, if you don't have a lot of research to show, it's hard to move up. The other direction is a little easier, but then you have to show that you're going to be a good teacher, right? So it's important to understand or to reflect in yourself, do you like teaching? Is that something that really motivates you? How much does research motivate you? And even if you love research, do you like the competitive nature of it, of always having to write grant proposals, because some people love that and thrive on it, and other people find it really exhausting, right? And so I think you need to reflect on those things, and that helps you understand maybe what kind of institution to look for. And then I would get advice from lots of other students and faculty members about schools they know about or types of schools you should be looking at that kind of fit your profile once you've reflected on what you think you want. And then know you can change along the way, but certain jumps are harder to make than others. Yeah, that makes sense. So it just seems like a lot of talking to as many people as you can and learning about different paths. And it kind of ties into what you're talking about before about learning through experiences. Like not only are you learning skills, but you're learning what skills you enjoy doing and, and what things you don't enjoy doing. Yeah, we just wanted to thank you. We've learned so much about you and your path. And it was really inspiring to see the kinds of skills that go into being a dean. We haven't talked to a dean before, so that was really interesting, but it's also nice to hear your story of, of how you got there and, and your research too. So thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for doing this. I think this is a really cool venue for you to highlight biomechanics and the different opportunities in biomechanics and what people are doing, which is fantastic. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope that you get to enjoy all kinds of great interactions at the conference this week and further on, since a lot of it will be available virtually afterwards. We appreciate everything from the American Society of Biomechanics and putting this conference on virtually and doing the work to do that. So we've enjoyed our time and I'm looking forward to, to the rest of the conference. And thank you everyone for joining us for the first ever live Boom episode. Now for the most fun part of the episode. Just kidding. That was an amazing interview with <laughs> Michelle. And I feel like I definitely learned a lot. And it was just really great to, again, hear that perspective of what it's like to be a dean, the things that she's juggling and thinking about for the future, as well as her own career path and kind of seeing the different turns that it took. Yeah. <laughs> I was just reading the fails that we have written down, which we should talk about now. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect transition. That was.
Hannah, do you want to talk about what was going on during this research fail? Or I guess not really research fail, but just... Yes, during this interview. So during this interview, virtual ASB, of course, was hosted from everyone's workspace or home monitors. As I'm doing our live virtual interview, all of a sudden I just hear outside my window an airplane that was way too close, way too close to one... (laughs) my building and into the ground because it was close to my building it was also too close to the ground and it was so loud I could not believe I like immediately asked Melissa if she could hear that because I wanted to mute myself but she did not hear it but she did say that we could add it to fails so that is my (laughs) that is my fail everyone's okay no one was hurt all good Yeah, that we're aware of. It's just kind of bizarre because like we're between two airports, but definitely not close enough where a plane should be (laughs) that close to any building. Not only did that happen during the interview, but we also had a a Zoom bomber, which was our, my first experience with a Zoom bomber, which for for that, like it could have been a lot worse, to be honest, (laughs) right? Like, do you want to describe what happened? Okay, I'm getting, trying to remember. I feel like he jumped in in the beginning, right? And then yes. played music with, like, dancing cartoons, I think. Yep, yep. It was, like, green. That's all I remember. Like, a, a I green cartoon. I feel like cartoon. it was, like, Shrek or something. Oh, but, maybe Shrek. Yeah. It was actually kind of fun. And we were all just, like, was that? Was, like... <laughs> I don't know. It was like kind of just yeah. lighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> we were like, was that even a Zoom bomber? Or was that just someone that was supporting Boom? <laughs> so anyway, it could have been bad. Luckily, it wasn't. And we were able to still have an awesome interview. We want to thank you for listening to this episode. We hope in the future, like we would love to have more live interviews. It was so fun because it was cool to be able to take questions from other people. So if you have any other ideas for congresses or any events that like it might be possible to host one of these at, or you think that would be fun, please let us know because we would love to do that again. Definitely. And yeah, huge thank you to all of you all for listening always. We were able to highlight some quotes from Boom listeners in our ASB boom poster. So that was super exciting. And we couldn't have made that poster. We couldn't be here without all of you. And we just always are reminded of how great you are, especially at at events where we get to interact directly and have questions. That was super exciting. Well, and thank you to the um, International Society of Biomechanics for sponsoring the podcast and the American Society of Biomechanics for providing us a platform to do this interview and for organizing the conference. And if you'd like to get involved with Boom, submit a research fail, suggest someone to interview, please email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or feel free to follow us on Twitter at biomechanicsoom and send us messages there too. Yeah, and we can't forget to thank Peter Washington for the Boom music as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm Melissa. I said I'm Hannah. I'm Hannah. Who even knows We anymore? can switch it up. We can switch it up. <laughs> uh, I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics Bye. off our minds. Off our-